KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. New recommendations on masking as infections rise. It is still one of the best tools we have to keep these outbreaks from getting worse and and to really get on the other side of this pandemic where we all want to be. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Details on a complicated real estate dispute with the city. The city's chief operating officer sent a notice to the city's landlord early this month saying there would not be any more rent payments coming for Civic Center Plaza. We'll tell you about a new rehab facility in the North County and kick off our summer music series. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. San Diego County officials are now following the lead for the CDC in recommending that all residents, vaccinated or not, wear masks indoors in public spaces. The new guidance is a reversal of the county's previous message over the last few weeks, which encouraged residents to get vaccinated, but said that facial coverings were optional. While the updated guidance stops short of the kind of full requirement that neighboring L.A. County has implemented, health officials are hoping that increased masking will slow the alarming rate of speed the virus has shown in recent weeks. Joining me with more is Dr. Christian Ramers, a specialist in infectious diseases who oversees clinical programs at Family Health Centers of San Diego. Dr. Ramers, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Good to be with you. What's your understanding of why the CDC is making this change now? So my understanding from the presentation yesterday that Dr. Walensky made is that there is new evidence that's emerging about the ability of fully vaccinated people even if they don't get sick, to transmit infection. And this may seem you know, like a, like a flip-flop or like whiplash when people hear something new every day, but really they're responding to evolving information. The original numbers that we saw in the clinical trials, again, were 95% protection from the vaccines, probably a 75% reduction in transmission, and nearly 100% protection from serious disease and death. And really the Delta variant has changed that whole calculus. Um, you know, that was, those trials were done last year when we didn't have any Delta around. The CDC recommendation about being able to take your masks off if you're fully vaccinated happened in April. And this major Delta outbreak in India didn't really happen until the end of April or May. So we're really operating on new information here. And I think the CDC is worried that if people, even if they're fully vaccinated, don't wear masks, they can still be vectors and and infect those around them. We know that there's a lot of people who are immunocompromised or who are vulnerable or who may not be vaccinated. And so this is where the masks uh, still have utility. Has our understanding, though, of the virus changed with the rise of the Delta variant? 
Yes. In fact, there's evidence that the amount of virus that people carry in their nose and mouth when they're sick with COVID, or even if they're asymptomatic, is about a thousand times higher with Delta variant. And we're not exactly sure why. It might have to do with the mutations uh, to do with the variant, but that's been observed. And really, that is probably what's driving a lot of the increased transmission that we're seeing. So even if someone has mild illness, they're vaccinated, they're fully protected against getting really severely sick from COVID, they could pass on uh, with these much higher levels of virus. um, And that's where the masks come in. What's known about the transmissibility of the Delta variant by people who are fully vaccinated specifically? We know that they that it's still transmissible, but how transmissible? You know, Dr. Walensky cited some data that has not been published yet, so I'm not really privy to to what it, it what it showed, and I, I hope that comes out really soon. But I think it was alarming enough, um, you know, from the CDC's own data that this recommendation had to change. What do we know about the effectiveness that masking has in slowing the spread of COVID-19? Yeah, this gets back to the fundamentals of what we know works. Uh, You know, we want to use all the tools at our disposal and and not just sort of take one side or the other on masks versus no masks. I think you're seeing public officials just, you know, rally all hands on deck here. What do we have in front of us to keep us from sliding back where we were last year and definitely to keep our businesses open and to keep us from having to do a lockdown again? Well, we have vaccines. We know they're very effective at keeping people healthy and keep them from getting in the hospital. We have social distancing and good air ventilation. Those things help as well. And then we have masking. And there was a study just put out on the MMWR, the CDC's publication, showing that the combination of HEPA filters, good air ventilation, plus masking gets you up to sort of 90% levels of protection, you know, kind of what we used to think of vaccines. So really all of these tools, when used together, give us the best effectiveness at preventing disease. Since we know the Delta variant is much more infectious and much more transmissible, uh, is there a specific type of mask that people should consider wearing? That's a really good question. You know, uh, a lot of the requirements from last year were just for a a basic cloth mask. But if people are able to get the type of blown fabric surgical masks, those probably work a little bit better. And then I know many people that are really trying to get their hands on N95 masks. We were very worried last year at the beginning of the pandemic that the public would buy all these and really get them out of the hands of healthcare workers who really need them in high risk situations. I would say, you know, for your general going to the grocery store type of thing, a cloth mask is better than nothing. A surgical mask is probably better than a cloth mask. And then my personal advice, and this is not really guideline driven, but if you're going to be on an airplane or somewhere that's really closed and, and really high risk, I think trying to get your, your hands on an N90 or a, an N95 is probably the right thing to do. Los Angeles County chose to require masks indoors before receiving the guidance from the CDC. Uh, With the uptick of infections here in the last few weeks, what's your take on why San Diego County waited for CDC guidance? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the public officials, but I, I do sympathize with the difficulty of enforcing this type of thing. So we would just love for the public to do what's right, to really get us, again, we're all in this together. We don't want to slide back into lockdowns and closing businesses and all those things. So let's really just all do what's right to decrease the transmission. Um, You know, I think the county does not want to be policing this and does not want to be, you know, trying to find people, that type of thing. They made it a recommendation at this time following the CDC. Um, And that's really, you know, most public health officers are going to follow what CDC says uh, because they have the, the best eyes on the newest data in terms of making these decisions. So the county may not want to have to police this, but uh, how effective will this new recommendation actually be if only a portion of the population chooses to mask up? Yeah, Jade, of course, any any intervention, as good as it looks on paper, it needs to work in practice. And I would just urge people, you know, wearing a mask is a minor inconvenience, uh, but it's so effective. And, and you don't want to be the person that causes these outbreaks. I mean, you know, all of us have 
parents and, and probably have friends and family that are vulnerable. And just the knowledge that you could be the one that makes somebody sick and dies. We're seeing stories and anecdotes all over the place of unvaccinated healthcare workers causing outbreaks in nursing homes and that type of thing. Nobody wants that blood on their hands, so to speak. Um, so I would just encourage people, you know, uh, appeal to their better, their better angels, really, to do the right thing. It's not such a hard thing to wear a mask. I wear a mask for eight hours a day sometimes. Um, it doesn't you know, impede my oxygen levels. It's a minor inconvenience. And it is still one of the best tools we have to keep these outbreaks from getting worse and, and to really get on the other side of this pandemic where we all want to be. Do you think it was inevitable that we were going to see a spike like this, given the county's plateauing rate of vaccination and optional mask use? Yes, I did. I think any time that we've had a reopening, any time that restrictions have been loosened a little bit and people mix and, and gather in more um, uh, closed and cramped settings, there is going to be a spike. I don't think any of us anticipated that the spike would coincide exactly with the time that the Delta variant arri arrived in San Diego. And so that's made it a little bit more dramatic than we thought. Plus, this new information about people that are fully vaccinated, uh, able to transmit the disease is kind of a perfect storm. You know, again, I keep saying I think we're in a better place than we were last year because of the vaccinations in above 60 percent in San Diego. And there's some hopeful signs in the UK, for example, which has very good vaccination rates that they're starting to get on the other side of this. Uh, you know, we we at the at one hand fear exponential spread where the curve just keeps going up and up and up and up. But we also have some degree of protection from the vaccinations that we already have. Um, so what do we do? Again, look at our tools on the table. Uh, get more people vaccinated. Those people that were still on the fence, it's still the best way to protect yourself. And then try to implement smart policies like, uh, like returning to masks and returning to some of the dis distancing policies to keep us safe. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, a specialist in infectious diseases who oversees clinical programs at Family Health Centers of San Diego. Dr. Ramers, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me. The San Diego City Attorney calls it gamesmanship. The building's lenders say they want their rent paid, and they filed suit to evict city offices and more than 800 employees from the Civic Center Plaza building. The dispute is part of an ongoing effort by the city to get out of an expensive and allegedly unlawful real estate deal, which includes the abandoned 101 Ash Street building. Now that the legal battle includes Civic Center Plaza, one of the iconic public spaces in downtown San Diego, the complicated real estate dispute may be exhibiting real-world consequences beyond the tens of millions of taxpayer dollars already sunk into the building deal. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. Lisa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Why isn't the city paying its rent on Civic Center Plaza? The city attorney decided late last month that the city should try to back away from both its 101 Ash and Civic Center Plaza leases and thus should not be paying rent anymore. And how has the plaza been drawn into the Ash Street controversy? So late last month, there was a big revelation that the city's landlord at Civic Center Plaza, Sestera Development, who also did the 101 Ash deal with the city, paid the city's real estate consultant, who was the volunteer, Jason Hughes, just over $5 million for his work on Civic Center Plaza and $4.4 million for his work on 101 Ash. Now that is significant because of a government code section known as 1090, which essentially says that people who are acting in an official capacity 
which can include um, people who are consultants or contractors, should not financially benefit from deals that they broker in those official roles. And so the city attorney said that both of these deals should be voided. And the city's chief operating officer sent a notice to the city's landlord early this month saying there would not be any more rent payments coming for Civic Center Plaza. Give us an idea, if you would, about the city departments that could potentially be involved in this eviction effort. Well, so there are about 850 city employees that report to this building. Probably has been some of a decrease because of the pandemic. We know so many folks are working from home, but there are more than a dozen city departments that have this building as their headquarters, city treasurer's office, the city's IT department, the city attorney's office uh, occupies multiple floors of this building. Um, Even the city's city TV that some of us watch to monitor city council meetings is in this building. So there are really a lot of questions about what will happen next for these employees and these departments. But uh, there is a charter school there that's not affected by this eviction threat. Yes, King Chavez uh, Community High School, which is, uh, as you said, a charter school, basically has been sort of set aside here. The lender has said that it's not going to try to kick the school out. They're essentially a subtenant. So they pay rent to the city, but they, you know, again, the lender has said they're not going to be trying to boot the high school. Now, as you said, a city attorney, Mara Elliott's office, is calling the lawsuit gamesmanship because of this lawsuit that the city has filed in an effort to void both the Civic Center and Ash Street real estate deals. But my question is, does the lender actually have the right to evict the city for non-payment of rent? Well, that will certainly be for a court to decide. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out because right now, these are two separate legal actions. You have the unlawful detainer case, essentially an eviction action. And then you also have these other legal actions seeking to essentially quash both leases. Um, The city will have, once it's actually served in the unlawful detainer case, five days to respond. Um, One legal expert I talked to suggested that the city may want to or try to uh, put together these multiple cases because they could then sort of link the issues and actually buy themselves more time because eviction cases typically move pretty quickly. Pre-COVID, they typically moved in about 45 to 60 days, um, which may seem like for most of us a longer period of time, but when we're talking about you know hundreds of city employees and lots of city departments, 45 to 60 days would be real panic mode for the city. Is former mayor, now recall candidate Kevin Faulkner, tied up in all of this? Well, that's a great question, Maureen, because I also have a lot of questions about what former mayor Kevin Faulkner knew. Hughes' attorney um, is making the case that the former mayor actually signed off um, on Hughes' ability to be paid for his work on these more complex deals um, and also you know, produced a letter Uh, that he says was signed by the city's former real estate director at the mayor's direction, saying, in fact, that Hughes could be paid. The attorney also produced text messages between the the mayor's former chief of staff um, and Hughes talking about this letter. Um, And I was able to look back at some um, calendars that I had obtained after public records request, um, showing that there was, in fact, a meeting between the mayor and Jason Hughes on the day that that letter was signed. But the, the mayor 
has really not directly addressed this issue. He's implied in some statements that he did not know um, that Hughes was being paid and that the payments were not disclosed. And certainly former Faulkner administration officials have really pushed back pretty hard. The former city real estate director said that she doesn't recall signing such a letter. And the mayor's former chief of staff has pushed back and criticized Hughes and said that, that the idea that they knew that he was being paid was wrong. Um, but there are still a lot of questions um, that I have for former Mayor Faulkner um, about what he knew and uh, I think would benefit from some direct answers from him. Now, City Attorney Mara Elliott's office says the city will make every effort to, and it's a, here's a quote, ensure public services go uninterrupted throughout court proceedings. But what is the potential for disruption of public services during this legal process? You know, Maureen, it's really hard to say. Um, certainly the experts I spoke to who work on these sorts of eviction cases say that there will be lots of opportunities for the city to try to drag this out. And one would imagine, certainly when we're talking about the headquarters of so many city departments and so many um, employees, that the city will make every effort to try to keep those employees in that building. Um, but the city ultimately did make the call to not pay rent here. And traditionally, that is something that could create the possibility of an eviction. Um, obviously, in this case, the city attorney, as you pointed out, is saying there's a lot more going on here that led the city attorney to stop paying rent. Um, but I guess we'll have to see what comes next in this one. I'll certainly be closely following it. I know that you will. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. You can read her story on the Civic Center Plaza lawsuit at voiceofsandiego.org. Lisa, thank you. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. A new rehabilitation hospital is now officially open in the North County. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says everything inside and out was built with the idea of getting critically injured patients back into their homes. I'm going to toss you a ball. Okay. See if you can catch it. All right. You want to try it? Yeah. Okay. Nice work. All right. 77-year-old right. Doug Bailey is in the middle of a physical therapy session. He bounces a ball back and forth, then gets out of a wheelchair to walk around the gym. Around? Yep. Let's go kind of around the front of the car. Okay. After a horrible bike accident, which broke his neck and caused spinal cord damage, Bailey was transferred to the new Palomar Health Rehabilitation Institute. I'm lucky to be alive, actually. Could have been serious enough to stop my breathing. While yeah. Bailey's brain is working fine, he's having to relearn how to use it. Two weeks before being admitted to the Rehab Institute, he was wheelchair-bound. They taught me how to walk again, actually, and how to use new neural pathways. The, since the spinal cord is damaged, then what the brain, uh, you know, my brain thinks I can get up and go for a little jog right now, but it doesn't work that way. With a few hours of physical therapy a day, Bailey says he feels himself getting stronger. I can tell I'm improving. My, my function in the fingertips, 
I couldn't I couldn't do this before at all and uh, so it's coming back faster than not as fast as I'd like but faster than than anticipated that's good okay your balance is getting better yeah Bailey is also undergoing occupational therapy here putting on my clothes bathing myself uh, feeding myself things like that most patients stay here for just under two weeks, but Bailey has a 30-day stay. And while he can walk again, the next part of his recovery will focus on refining his motor skills. Like right now, I, I don't even think I could sign my name to a piece of paper, but I think that'll improve a lot. The rehab facility is technically a hospital and also has a full apartment inside where patients can stay overnight just before being released back into their homes. What is your typical day like at home? Are you a golfer? Is that where we want to go with this? Um, are you a walker, a hiker? You know, what what types of um, activities do you want to be able to tolerate when you go home? And that's sort of how we build that plan. Natalie Jermuska is CEO of the Rehab Institute, which is a joint venture between Palomar Health and Kindred Hospital. There's definitely a need, especially in the North County. Um, for this type of care. And it's a separate entity from a normal acute care. So we have specialized equipment. We have special trained nursing staff. Some of that special equipment includes motion sensing technology, which can be used in games that help people regain balance and function. There's also a small car inside the gym that patients can practice getting in and out of. Our hospital's pretty much built for that rehabilitation patient. It doesn't have OB, it doesn't have ER. We're not competing for resources. Everything is built around rehabilitation. The 52-bed facility was licensed by the state in May and is only accepting Medicare patients, but that will change as operations are gradually scaled up over the next year. We would like to see, and what we've seen just with our small population is 84 to 90 percent of our patients go home. They don't need to go to a skilled level for further care. This unique facility generally treats patients who suffered strokes, amputations, and spinal cord damage. But I want you to not hold on if you don't have to. Okay. This is actually his first time walking without holding on to anything. Bailey's progress is remarkable. He's hoping to be at or Fantastic. near 100% function soon. Yep. Right now, he Good. still has to wear a brace around his body and neck. I'm hoping that as uh, my strength returns and my balance returns, that I won't have to wear as many braces anyway. Maybe not even a neck brace when I get out of here. I don't know. He says if you're coachable and with encouragement from staff, recovery is possible. But he's not sure what life will be like once he goes home. I think my bicycling days might be over just because uh, I'm my, my wife's primary caregiver. And uh, I don't want to jeopardize that any more than I have to. I want you to do it really safely, slowly. Without touching anything. Try not to. If you have to, it's here. The Fallbrook resident is set to go home at the end of this month. Yes. Yes. Nice work. Turn around for me. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Joining me is Natalie Dramuska, CEO of Palomar Health Rehabilitation Institute. And Natalie, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Maureen. Why was a facility like this needed? Don't hospitals usually provide rehabilitation services to their patients? Yes, um, actually all general acute care hospitals have an established rehabilitation um, center, um, if you will. They have therapists that see patients in the acute units um, getting ready to go home. We were established because there's a need for a higher level of rehabilitation with a focused approach for patients that have neurologic injuries, um, traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord, and even post-stroke that need to have more intensive therapy prior to going home. So the therapy will start in that um, acute center, like a Palomar Health or a Scripps Health, 
And then after that, they will move to our individual setting um, where we can provide more of an intensive therapy. And what determines whether someone needs a stay in a rehabilitation facility as opposed to perhaps an outpatient physical therapy? Right. It's really the intensity of service that we're giving. We have a board-certified physical medicine and rehabilitation physician that will see that patient on a daily basis and provide a treatment plan in concert with our occupational and physical and speech therapists. Um, These patients will receive um, at least three hours of rehabilitation every day, um, meaning up to five or six days a week um, as they can um, tolerate. And then we have uh, more specialized equipment um, that can be utilized. We have an exoskeleton for uh, mobility training for spinal cord injuries. We have an emotion machine, which is intensive therapy for upper extremity injuries. Um, We have multiple gyms, uh, certified therapists, as well as certified nurses in rehabilitation. Everything we do is centered around that rehabilitation to get patients to full functioning at home. What is an exoskeleton? Is that a form of a brace? It's a a full body. It's almost like a bionic um, suit, if you will. Um, It's actually used to um, do flexion and extension with uh, different muscles in the body. And it's a full body brace almost. Um, And it actually trains the muscles again for walking. So um, it's something that we have um, and have invested in training for our therapists for, um, and it works great for those stroke patients um, who have some hemiplegia, spinal cord injury patients, um, so that we can actually get them moving again. Now, we heard about patient Doug Bailey and really how quickly he was responding to the rehabilitation therapy. What makes someone a good candidate for this kind of therapy? Well, I think as you saw um, with Doug's video, he talked about being coachable. I think that the patients have to have a willingness um, to push forward um, through the therapy exercises and uh, treatment plan. Um, obviously, it's it's a little bit more intensive and rigorous at a rehabilitation hospital. So we're asking patients to really do the full limits of their capabilities. Um, and so they have to really be able, I mean, when we look at patients, we just, we look at them in terms of their previous therapy notes in the acute care setting. Can they actually tolerate this intensive therapy? Can they, can they tolerate three hours of therapy in different modalities every day? Uh, will that make a difference in their lives and their ability to be discharged home? Um, and with that, we do look at those patients that do require physician oversight. Um, In an outpatient um, care setting, you would not get that, and here you do. So we may accept a patient who's still having some medical issues uh, regarding medication management or other things, wound care management, that the nursing staff can provide in the inpatient setting, along with all of the therapeutic interventions we're doing. Does the Palomar Rehabilitation Facility have a program of at-home follow-up for patients? We actually um, move that into the folks that already have that skill set centers of excellence. So for instance, if a patient came from Palomar Health, we would then discharge them back to Palomar Health in that outpatient setting. If a patient came from Scripps, we would then discharge them back into their setting at Scripps with that outpatient therapy. We are purely an inpatient rehabilitation institute currently. When the Palomar facility is running at full capacity, how many patients do you hope to treat? 
Well, our, our bed count is 52 private beds. So we can go up to 52. We're hoping um, at the end of the year to be um, at about 30. And then over the course of 2022 to uh, fill to capacity, there's definitely a need. We did some you know, market analysis on that. There's definitely a need in the San Diego County. We like to be the center of excellence for the whole area, not just limit ourselves to the Northeast. So, um, so that's our goal. Yeah, I know rehab can be needed for people of all ages, but with the number of older people increasing, I would imagine you expect the need for this kind of therapy to grow. Absolutely. And um, and it is interesting that you say that. Initially, we are just really accepting Medicare, and we just started to um, put together some contracts with some of the commercial payers. So we're starting to see... Um, age groups, um, you know, middle age, even down to some, you know, older teenagers who are getting into skateboarding accidents and those types of things. So um, right now, our population is uh, mostly a Medicare base over 65. But as we progress, um, and what we had seen earlier in our operating acute care unit at Palomar was that we were serving patients as young as 18. So if an elderly person, say, has a stroke or an accident, it no longer means they can't get back to taking care of themselves. Is that right? That's correct. Our goal is to get those folks home, just like Mr. Bailey. He was in his 70s, a former pilot, very active, riding his bicycle, happened to get in an accident and break his neck. There's no reason that someone in that age group who's active and has a productive life cannot get back to that same situation after their hospitalization. And he actually went home yesterday. So highly successful. I've been speaking with Natalie Jermuska, CEO of Palomar Health Rehabilitation Institute. Natalie, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Maureen. Have a great day. In its 120-year history, Scripps Institution of Oceanography has been a leader in marine research and the study of climate change. Their scientific breakthroughs are globally known. Now that history is showcased in a new book featuring 200 photos, Robert Monroe is the author of Images of America, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He's also a communications officer at Scripps, and he joins us now. Robert, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So how did the idea for this book come about? I know it's one in a series of books about the history of local places, right? The uh, publisher, Arcadia Publishing, came to us first looking for an author, and my office fielded that initial request, and so I sort of took it on. And originally, I took the idea to uh, Scripps as a retired historian. There's Peter Brueggemann and Deborah Day, who just know everything there is to know about scripts, uh, but they are retired, in fact, and uh, enjoying retirement. And I think they just didn't have the bandwidth for it. So after that, I just volunteered myself. To me, it kind of made sense. I've been writing about scripts history for the last 20 years. And just a few years ago, Scripps installed kind of an art installation in its main building, sort of depicting scripts history. And so that required me to do a lot of research on uh, what the key events in Scripps history were, and also to uh, get an inventory of all the photos. So I, in a sense, I had already kind of laid the groundwork for this book four or five years ago. Hmm. You know, Scripps Institution of Oceanography has been, uh, well, an institution uh, in San Diego since 1903. So why did you want to tell the story of its history? 
Well, you know, it's kind of amazing. Uh, Scripps hasn't really had any kind of popular history book written about it, as far as I can tell, for at least 50 years. And, you know, I, we can't take it for granted that everyone in San Diego understands uh, why Scripps is a, a big deal in its world. And, I'm, you know, I'm never really sure how much I think people know of Scripps' reputation, but they may not know just uh, specifically where that reputation comes from. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit biased. I work there. But I mean, among research centers, we really are the, the pinnacle in our fields. Uh, in oceanography, there are entities like NOAA or you know, the UK's Met offices that are bigger operations in terms of people and, and budgets and so forth. But uh, in academia, Scripps really is the place in the world that still holds that title. Scripps pedigree is really something that means something to scientists. And, you know, Plus, I mean, we're in California and, you know, California is relatively young and there aren't too many places in California that are, can be said to be the place in the world for whatever their particular focus is. And so it's kind of cool that we have this one right here in San Diego. Mm. So, so what are some of the highlights of the institution's history then that people, as you say, may not know about? Well, the term oceanography, as it is defined now among scientists, uh, originated here. Uh, it originated uh, around uh, World War II in the form of a book about oceanography that kind of became the Bible of oceanography. The term oceanography had, had been bouncing around since the 1870s, but it meant different things to different people. You know, for some, it meant sort of like that part of geology that extended into the oceans. Others uh, meant sort of more marine biology stuff, but there was never really a holistic view of oceanography until the uh, Scripps researchers wrote this textbook, which they wrote because the, everything else was kind of lacking, you know, the you know, course materials that, that, that they were trying to use to teach students or were good on this point or that point, but not as an overall connection of biology and earth systems and the atmosphere that really has come to comprise what oceanography is now. So that's one thing. The argument can strongly be made that the modern era of climate change research started right here at Scripps. I date it to the beginnings of the Keeling curve, uh, which started in 1958. For people who don't know, that's the measurement of carbon dioxide in the air. A few years ago, it went over 400 parts per million and got a lot of attention for that. But that's like the barometer of climate change. And that's ours. Uh, there are other things. Um, coastal oceanography, sort of the study of beaches and 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 surf zone processes and things like that pretty much started with one guy here. And now every researcher who is in that field kind of considers themselves like the son of that guy in an academic sense or the grandson or granddaughter or, or you know, great-granddaughter by this point. Probably the biggest advancement in oceanography, in my opinion, is a, is a network that's called Argo. And it's like a network of robotic floats that go out in the oceans and and can measure what's going on in the oceans down to 2,000 meters, which is about 6,500 feet. And never before in history have we been able to see all of the oceans at once like this. And that's just transforming the way we see the oceans because, you know, you just can't have that kind of view any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what do you hope readers take away from this book? I really hope people in San Diego realize just what a gem this is um i mean how this is like a world-class place i make the point in the book and probably people will dispute it but I'll, I'll stand by it you know i think without scripts a lot of the character of san diego that we have now doesn't happen because scripts was a through the academic center that brought about uh, uc san diego in 1960 
you see San Diego is what brought about the Golden Triangle, the Qualcomm's and so forth. And so, you know, this community of really, you know, science professionals, uh, I think was really attracted to San Diego in large part, I'm sure not entirely, but by the influence of scripts and, and making the city like a really, a real destination kind of place. I've been speaking with Robert Monroe, a writer and editor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And you can catch Robert later today at Warwick's. He'll be speaking about his new book, Images of America, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, at 4 p.m. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Audiences are back. Venues are opening up. And San Diego is bursting with music from local artists this summer. So we're here to capture some of that creativity, energy, and joy with the return of the KPBS Summer Music Series. And we're lucky to begin the series with a young artist whose unique brand of pop music is catching lots of attention. Jelani Arie's songs have a rich sonic palette and sound otherworldly as the lyrics look inward and explore the complexity of our times. But Jelani grew up in San Diego of African-American, Filipino, and Chinese descent, and somehow, along with its introspection and emotional honesty, his music always lets the sunshine in. We begin with a single from his new album, I've Got Some Living to Do, and this is Jelani Arie with his song, Marigold. the song Marigold by Jelani Arie off his new album, I've Got Some Living to Do. And Jelani, let me welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How's your day been? 
My day's been going pretty good today, and it's better since I've been hearing your music. I know a lot of people say that to you, because <laughs> I've been reading on uh, YouTube. A lot of people give you crazy compliments. How do you handle that? I don't know. <laughs> it is like the feeling that I can't put like words to. And it's just crazy how many people connect with the songs, because initially I just make them for myself. It's not really thinking if people are going to resonate and just the fact that they comment and really share how the song makes them feel. I couldn't ask for more. Tell us ab about the song that we heard, Marigold. What got you interested in creating it? I was doing some research online about the flower Marigold and I came up on its nickname and I guess it's Little Lion and my name Jelani Arie means mighty lion. So Jelani means mighty in Swahili and then Arye means lion in Hebrew. So I try to weave like marigold little lions with my name and then also bringing in like imagery of the sun and just like weaving all three of those things together and making a song called Marigold. And I feel like it's my soul song. It's who I'd like to be kind of behind the walls of like my skin, who I think I am like on a soul level. But yeah, Marigold is just, I feel like me. Do you know what inspired you like overall to begin to make music? I think I just wanted an escape initially away from football. I was in high school football and I just really wasn't enjoying it anymore. I was getting hurt a lot and music just felt like something new. And Childish Gambino's Because the Internet album made its way to me somehow. And I was intrigued by the way an artist can create a whole world around their album. And he made like a screenplay and like a short film with it. And I just want to give that to people as well. So I think Childish Gambino and just having like another world to live in is what kind of brought me to music. You did do the whole number on that whole experience of having to give up playing football and being injured and not wanting to go on and wanting to change your direction. Tell us about the song Jet Fuel. Jet Fuel was more of a reflection on my high school experience and leaving the sport of football that I was playing for my whole kind of just high school career, I guess. My dad was my coach from age six to my freshman year. He was super slated on the fact that I was going to play football in college. And the song was just kind of after I told him I no longer wanted to play and the feelings that I had. Jet Fuel was kind of just a conversation between me and my dad and telling him like music is what I really want to do and what feels right. Miles long, so it seems. Passing the pylons a fucking dream Cause in the stands, no one screams Leaving the field with some low esteem Every game ends the same With too many shots to the fucking brain Probably why I tend to space And carry this barren look on my face Hey, Dad don't wanna play cause it makes me heartless and hopeless at times Shit, I could've said sad but it's not even close When's the last time we touched down? When's the last time I scored? Used to call me the jet plane Little boy from the north I had to leave the sport 
and the school shit aberrations in full just know that i had to go it's good to know this shit ain't like in fuel fatigue that was the song jet fuel by jelani arie so when you gave up football how did your dad react at first he was like son i won't be able to look at you the same because he put in all of these years with me and was pretty set on me going to college and making this like my thing. Jetfield came about around I say early 2019 and I call it where we go part 2 um because where we go was I wrote that after the night I told my dad I no longer wanted to play football on pursue music. I don't know song where we go the reception of that was so i guess just unexpected and he was shocked by the fact that so many other people connected with it that now like him and my mom are kind of my biggest fans or like advocates and they're like are you responding to fans are you doing this are you doing that and like they're on me more than i'm on myself sometimes so i really appreciate them just coming around and um just appreciating what i have to do and what i have to offer the world so you and your dad are good now oh yeah super good super good <laughs> i hope <Okay>. so dad <laughs> <laughs> minute to minute right <laughs> yeah for real for real <laughs> um what was it like growing up in the san diego suburbs growing up in the suburbs was super strange i mean at the time it didn't feel wrong or anything but i'd say i was away from my culture or like my ethnicity and my family cuz a lot of them are in the philippines or in ohio or like up north in california so it was weird not really having that family present but i was always able to just like hang out talk to everyone and make friends super easily and i think i got really lucky but living in the suburbs it was It was really hard to find like a scene once I got into music of just like-minded people and I think that's why I took to the internet because I wanted a community with people of a like mind and it was it was kind of hard to find that where I lived. Talk to us more if you would about the whole idea of connecting with people on the internet to make your music, to form your ideas, to form a music collective. How mm. how influential has that been to your growth as an artist? Mm. I think the internet has I owe the internet so much for I guess just my success in learning just learning in general um but I formed my group my music collective raised by the internet on Reddit on Odd Future Frank Ocean and um a Brockhampton subreddit and I was just like that does anyone want to make a group full of beautiful just music and art and we don't have to have a certain genre and the guys that responded to that are my group 
but it's crazy because like maybe 30 years ago you wouldn't be able to just click on something and have people respond to you and create this community so i think the internet it's a jump starter for having that opportunity and having that community of people and that's what i think i appreciate the most is how fast and like how willing people are to just get to know each other and talk about their like what they love to do jelani your music is very colorful your music videos, of course, reflect that and reflect a certain attitude and a certain fashion sense. And I'm wondering, where do you get that? Where do you get that fashion sense, that presence? From like a young age, my dad always made it apparent that just clothes are super important and the way you look is like a reflection of how you feel. And so every time I dress, I just want something that feels right. But I'd say I pull a lot from the eras that I listened to. So a lot of like 60s and 70s and 90s and kind of just blending those eras and styles together. So I wear a lot of like flared pants, a lot of like boots, Doc Martens, and then tight fitting shirts. Um, Cause it just like feels right. And that's kind of my headspace at the moment. But yeah, I give all credit to my dad for just making clothes something of importance and like matching and just wearing the right shoes and sneakers and stuff. But yeah, fashion is super important. And just the way a silhouette looks on your body, I think is super important for my image or someone else's image. So let's move now to your new album. How did you come up with the title, I've Got Some Living To Do? I came up with the title, I've Got Some Living To Do. I was driving back from LA back to SD and I, I was listening to Velvet Underground, thinking what I was going to talk about in the next album, Let Us Have Our Time. And I was like, dang, I've got some living to do. And then just a light bulb kind of went off in my head. And I was like, that's the title for this album. And it just feels something about it feels very young, very casual, and just like being 21 years old and figuring out life and especially coming out of a pandemic, just we've got some living to do, I've got some living to do, I got some traveling to do, I got to see the people that I love, I want to get out of the country for the first time. And I feel like it just, it makes people think and reflect on their life and what they want for themselves in the future. Let's go out with the title track from Jelani R.A.'s new album, I've Got Some Living To Do. And Jelani, before we leave, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the KPBS Summer Music Series, sitting down, talking to us, giving us some insight into your work and your music. And thank you so much. Good luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Much love.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.